HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I am live in studio kicking off the first episode of Season 5. Um, how cool is that? Season 5, very happy to be here, and very happy to have my guest in studio with me. I am with Chef Henry True. He is the chef and owner of the Vietnamese restaurant Falanzai in Bushwick, so right around the corner. He was born in Saigon, which is now Ho Chi Minh. <laughs> um, and yeah, his restaurant is the first to bring Vietnamese comfort food to the streets of Bushwick, where we are just a few blocks away at Roberta. So welcome to the show, Chef Henry. Thank you so much. It's really nice to be here. It's really nice to have you. And I'm glad you only had to walk just a few a few minutes to get here from your restaurant. And I know you told your staff that you were just like going out for a smoke or something. <laughs> um, well... Let's start, I guess, at the beginning, talking about um, your background a little bit. So I know that you were born in Vietnam when it was the city was Saigon. Do you remember what your life was like then? Or I don't know how old you were when you left. Well, I left when I was about uh, 13, 14. Oh, okay. And um, yes, I do remember a lot. I actually remember um, when communists took over and... Um, there was a war, and I could see the airplane shooting at tanks and stuff like that overhead. Well, was that terrifying? <laughs> well, yes, but also it was kind of like a movie. Yeah. Because I wasn't in it. <laughs> right, because you were so young, it was probably hard to kind of process what was, was exactly. going on. So it seemed exciting in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, when your family made the decision to leave... Did you, did you sort of comprehend what was happening at that point? Or like, what was your feeling about having to pick up and did you know you were coming to the United States? Or what, what do you remember about that experience? Well, um, so a lot of people had left already. Um, we, were, we were in the middle class and we used to have a factory. And um, when the communists took over, they sort of uh, demonized the middle class um, as we were exploiting workers and so on. Um, 
I remember when they took over, um, the school were um, changed a lot. Um, the math was something like yesterday, com- company C shot down three American planes, and today they shot down two more. How many are together? Are you serious? Yes. They incorporated the politics into exactly, your math lessons? Exactly, yes. And then there were... They and that's so interesting that you remember that. So it must have really struck you. I mean, you must have like, understood that something was really off with what you were being taught at yeah, that point. Exactly. And along with that was that they would tell you, the kid in the school, that um, if you were rich, you're exploiting the poor people. And if your family were rich, you should tell us where they hide their money. Oh, my God. And some kids would get brainwashed and go and tell them where the money's, uh, family's money were. And they would come and arrest the family and put them in um, uh, educational camp, re-education, uh, re-education camps. Um, so were you the, one of those kids that was intimidated? <laughs> no, I was smarter than that. <laughs> but, <laughs> I, um, but, but what I also saw was that uh, because of that, a lot of... Uh, parents were afraid mm-hmm. uh, that what their kid might be learning in school. So it was okay for me to skip school. Mm-hmm. And so I kept skipping school and pretty much spent a lot of time playing soccer on the street uh, rather than going to school. Um, so that was great for me. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so we, 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 we realized it, uh, that they were incorporating all these um, uh, propaganda. And it, actually it was everywhere. It basically, they would organize um, each street into blocks, and each block, there is a captain, and the captain will keep an eye on everyone and make sure that you know, you're know you doing what you're supposed to do. Um, they would get other um, uh, young people, young men to go and dig canals and do things like that. Um, and so they would broadcast propaganda on the streets every day, and um, they would give you like coupons and stuff to go buy, stand in line and buy food, even though the food was sometimes extremely inappropriate. I remember one time they were sending uh, wheat, and so Vietnamese eat rice. Mm. We cook rice. Oh, but like culturally inappropriate. Culturally, no. Well, it it's also uh, we couldn't consume them because they hand us uh, wheat grains of wheat. And we didn't know what to do with it. Oh, right. And so, you know, you're supposed to grind them up and make bread. Did they explain that? No. So everybody just take it, take home, put it in the rice cooker and try to cook it. Oh, my God. And you couldn't eat it. And then you just give it to somebody else. But you would keep going back uh, every week to get them. And you just kept getting the same wheat. Uh, because if you don't, they would want to know why wouldn't you, why don't you need to eat? Oh, right. Uh, do you have occur- money? It never occurred to them that you didn't know what to do. Right. Well, well it actually occurred to the people who watch us because they are in the same boat. Oh. But they would, um, you, you have to keep going back to get the stuff that you don't need because if you don't, the, the assumption is you have money and you bought stuff on the black market. So, you know, it was, was kind of like that. I mean, it, it sounds more evil. But than, were, I mean, were you going hungry at that point? No, but we were we were upper middle middle class, uh-huh. and we actually had food. Um, but the stuff that they gave us was not something that we would eat every day, <laughs> and you didn't know what to do with it. And I think what, the reason they gave us that was because they had bought weapons from the Soviet Union, 
And in return, they're sending stuff over there and they get something back. So the wheat was coming from the Soviet Union? Yeah, but they didn't know what to do with it. So they're they trying to pass it off it. to you. Right, right. It's, uh, it's strange stuff like that. So That uh, is so strange. Um, do you remember your your the conversation your family had when they told you that you were going to be leaving? Yeah, I mean, uh, so other people start to leave, and, and to leave, you actually have to have money mm-hmm. to pay off uh, smugglers. And and what you're paying is not Vietnamese money because no, it has no value. It would, they can keep printing it many if they want, and denomination get bigger and bigger. What people wanted were U.S. dollars or gold. And pretty much not wheat. <laughs> not wheat. <laughs> and uh, it's pretty much gold. Everybody's just passing gold around. And you have to have enough gold to get one of your member, fam- member of your family to go. So you actually don't send the entire family out because that would be too, many, too much gold yeah. that you wouldn't have. So you do it over time. Whenever you have enough, you send one and send one. And, and when you send them out, basically you just go with fishermen who are trying to escape. Uh, and you're on the high sea with people you don't know. I went out when I was 13 or 14 with my sister, who was 17 at the time. And neither of us, especially my sister, had never left the city up to that point. Were your parents with you? No. No, they, uh, they had sent an older brother and sister out. One sister made it out, one brother got caught and thrown in jail. So basically they're going to wait around for him to be out of jail a year and a half later. Oh. And, and, and then they slowly send other, pe- other kids out. We have, there were seven brothers and sisters all together, so there's a few of us. Oh, my God. Did you, and your parents made it eventually? Yeah, uh, the, the last group was my parents, the brother who was thrown in jail, and the younger brother. So what was the plan for you once you arrived, if you were just by yourself? Well, the plan is you get out of Vietnam, basically. Yeah. And some of, the, some of the reason was because um, my dad had came from China and he came from a rural area um, during the famine he actually did not know how to grow things because they didn't want anything to grow uh, when he was a teenager and he had bought farms around Vietnam trying to move to the countryside to get away from the city um, so that we don't look suspicious that we're the middle class in the city hmm. and he wanted to buy farmland just in case we get expelled from the city as they did in neighboring Cambodia, where they emptied the city and throw everyone into the countryside. Uh, but luckily, the Vietnamese wasn't evil, wasn't crazy. They were just, they were just communists. Um, <laughs> and it's not, you know, eventually we realized that they were just nationalists. They weren't really trying to, like, you know, of course, they take revenge on uh, soldiers and general and their family and stuff yeah, like that. But they weren't there to rape and pillage. Yeah, yeah, they weren't. And they, they, they actually put the generals in re-education camps, and they were really trying hard to understand why the soldiers would be fighting alongside Americans. Mm. As they had expelled the French, they was just wanted to know why. Um, but, but they weren't trying to kill people <laughs> like neighboring right. Cambodia. So after we escaped, um, you sort of, um, I guess they were just hoping that we would land somewhere. And at some point we were uh, reunited. Uh, sometimes some people go to uh, 
Australia, um, U.S., Canada, and uh, Western Europe. It's just so mind-boggling to think about that you were, you know, 13, you landed somewhere in the world, and the hope is that your family would reconnect, Yeah. you know, with without internet or cell phones or <laughs> right. money. Right, right. And, and, and there's a point where they sold like $100 U.S. money into one of my pants, and uh, during during the trip to the countryside, where we're stumbling in the dark, with torches on our hands, walking in, in between these uh, rice fields, I fell into a mud pit. I think it was a part of the river, and I was sinking and sinking. I thought I was going to die, mm. and I was just somehow grab onto some bushes, and it was full of thorns, and I pulled myself out. And somewhere in there, I had lost. Actually, it wasn't in my pants. It was in my shoes. Oh. The glue between my shoes. So basically, the money that they gave me was gone. Um, and that was the only money you had? That, that I knew I had. <laughs> and my sister had something on her. Um, and then we made it to the sea, and there was a storm. And, I mean, there's a, actually, looking back at the age, at that age, it was a, it was a big adventure. <laughs> we never left I, the sea. It sounds very dramatic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were... We were out in the storm in the sea, and um, looking back, are you are you amazed that you survived? No, or that you landed on your feet. Yeah, most people survived, <laughs> and, and so you know the the you know uh, people died, but uh, people we knew made it. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and at that age, I didn't know any better, so I could. Uh, okay, so where did you where did you end up? So we ended up in Malaysia. Um, we headed somewhere and uh, were intercepted by a Malaysian Navy. They gave us some rice and sugar, and they put a rope around a boat and dragged it out to the sea and said bye-bye. <gasps> <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, at least they gave us rice and water. <laughs> yeah, you're like, at least no more wheat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, um, and then we ended up somewhere else, and we landed in some... Um, uh, it was a tourist uh, island or something. It was really beautiful. The water was green. But previously, when we were in the sea, the, the water was dark blue. And I have never seen the sea that is not connected to the shore before. Mm, yeah. Um, so from that to this green, light, turquoise color, it was amazing. <laughs> um, so that was a good part of the adventure. It is a good part of it. Uh, I mean, there, there's some weird stuff that happened that, to me, was that uh, when we were up in the high sea, I was throwing up as everyone was because it was really rough. Yeah, And then some, And then someone told me that you should go into the engine room of this boat. And the boat wasn't that big. It was probably about 50 feet, and there was like 40 people on it. Um, and, and in this... Um, engine room, it was warm, and I stopped throwing up, and I fell asleep, and there was seawater underneath my feet and all this, but like years later, when I was in San Francisco, I was walking around the beach one night, and there was a broken down uh, trailer that smelled like diesel, mm. and the seawater, the air came in, the marizia, <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that word, um, and uh, it was the most comforting smell I, I ever remember because it was the same smell in the engine room that kept me from throwing up, <laughs> kept me warm. <laughs> it was the strangest thing. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really lovely. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, so that, that was part of the journey. Uh, 
Oh, and then we ended up in a refugee camp island where the UN HCR took care of us. They gave, gave us food, but no fuel. So at 13 years old, you get to climb up the hill in the forest, cut down trees, <laughs> and, and cut them into pieces, and then you can dry them for fuel. This was like an island off Malaysia somewhere? Yeah, yeah. It's okay, the, so it's you're in a refugee the, camp there. A refugee camp, camp where... Uh, uh, the, it, it, it was just like camping. <laughs> but they gave up food that were that's re- repetitive. It was like uh, white bread, instant noodle, and it, you just try to find many, many ways of working with that. Yeah, it's like know. what Americans eat in middle school and elementary school. <laughs> right, right. We try to supplement it with fish with cotton on the sore and, you know. Yeah. Try to be creative with instant noodles. Right. <laughs> Is that what got you... I mean, got you cooking for the first time or sort of inspired you to think about food creatively? Yeah, I guess we're doing that. But uh, no, I mean, I actually learned cooking from watching my mom. Mm -hmm. Um, And the funniest thing is my mom came from China when there was famine and she never had enough to eat. All she ever ate were rice congee with yam. Um, And she never knew how to cook Chinese food. Actually, she never had Chinese food. What? Basically, they, they was always in famine. They never had enough to eat. Wow. So when she went to Vietnam, um, she learned cooking from her Vietnamese neighbors. And yeah. so we, we ate Vietnamese food mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but that's where she learned to cook. And, uh, and that's where I watched her cook, I guess. Yeah. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And we'll be right back to talk more with Henry Chu from Falanzai. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm in studio talking with Henry True. He's the chef and owner of Falanzai Vietnamese Kitchen, which is in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, so, Henry, we've been talking about your very dramatic uh, adventure of when you were 13 and had to leave Vietnam um, and ended up on a, at a refugee camp somewhere on an island off Malaysia. Um, which it's been a really incredible story to listen to. So, uh, so how did you end up in the United States after living in this refugee camp? Yes. Which you described as being kind of like camping. <laughs> yeah, it was like camping. And, uh, 
without <laughs> with with very bad food, which I guess is also kind of like camping usually. <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, yeah. So uh, eventually, the U.S. Uh, allow us to come. Uh, we, we get to apply for the different country. Uh, most people wanted to come to the U.S. because that was our allies, that's who we knew. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we, I came to San Francisco uh, and then I re- reunited with uh, some of my siblings who had arrived like a few months earlier. Did you know they were in San Francisco or uh, was that kn- just luck? No, we knew that okay. they, 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 they knew that there's somebody there and so they sent us there. Oh, okay. And um, a more drama here, <laughs> the, the first day I arrived, uh, the night that I arrived, I think it was when Harvey Milk was killed. Really? And we were in the Tenderloin, which is like a couple of blocks yeah. from the uh, city hall. And uh, the uh, uh, the gay community was in riot um, because there's someone that killed one of his, their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're burning cars and stuff, but just remember. So like, that was your first day in the United States. Your first or second day, and was like, what? Uh, Did you know what was going on? No, we didn't even know. I didn't even know the word gay. <laughs> Did no you speak English to, at all? No, not at all. Yeah, not no English. Uh, didn't even understand uh, what was happening. Did you? I mean, from your perspective, were you like? I guess this is what the U.S. is like. <laughs> There's like, just like <laughs> burning riots in the streets every day. <laughs> No, but that, that that seemed to pass really quickly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you understood it was a you know a circumstance. I actually didn't even think about it. <laughs> it was like, uh, well, yeah, it's well, but it's, uh, like business yeah. as usual. No, no, because we came from Vietnam and there was war. Right. And, right. Sure. You know, there's like, um, you know, you know, violence happened daily yeah. on a daily basis. So uh, it, it seems like actually pretty tame compared to <laughs> where we came from. <laughs> didn't bet an eye. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but that it stayed with you though. Yeah yeah, it, it stayed with me probably because of what I heard later on, learning about Harvey Milk and, right. and the story. Like, and they, oh, oh wait, I remember that. You know? Yeah, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and then um, and then soon after, actually, uh, you know, in the old day, teenager get to get to work, mm-hmm. and and we all went to work, and I was working at the restaurants, and I ended up in a French restaurant working on weekends. For about four years, and I learned to make souffle. Then, uh, was any of the food familiar with you, though? No, they weren't. But they tasted fine to me. So yeah. Um, so you know, and uh, my brother was working there as well. Um, and so you know, we, I just learned to make stuff that that they um, they taught me how to make. And mm-hmm. and those those things stay with me to this day. Mm. Uh, you know, one of these the dessert at Falansai uh, is a um, a cassava cake that in Vietnam we put coconut milk in uh, mashed with cassava and then you put it in the oven or you steam it and they're very dense and it tasted good but it's really dense and I was thinking oh, Americans don't eat this stuff because it's like it's like a block mm-hmm. so I remember that I used to mix souffle and we use uh, a meringue a lot so I just whipped it in and then now it's one of our staples it's, mm-hmm. it's nice and soft and it's tasty and um, you know so, so yeah so I did learn something <laughs> as a teenager. <laughs> so I, I'm a proponent of sending your kid to work early. <laughs> <laughs> if 
Maybe not that early. <laughs> not that early, but uh, a kid can do so much than we allow them to do, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when did you decide to open your own restaurant? Or, or there was a transition between when you were working in restaurants as a teenager yeah, I did. I, I before mean, you I, decided to become an actual chef? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I worked in various restaurants, and then my dad owned a Chinese restaurant in Oakland. I worked there for a year managing it and helped cook and then uh, I went to university, graduated, went to work in the graphic arts and uh, web design field, and then uh, bumped around with all these uh, bank jobs that design websites for trading and stuff. And then one day I was sitting at my last job, uh, which was at the World Trade Center number seven or whatever. And, and I was sitting there and said, well, what's the best part of my job? And it was actually the view out my window. Hmm. And I said, it's time to quit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, then uh, so I decided to open a restaurant, but I, I tried to start small. Somehow it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and it became a full fit restaurant. So the restaurant that you opened then is, is it's it's Falanda. It's right. the same. You've only opened one restaurant. Oh, one it's the restaurant, same restaurant. Right. When I went to look at this restaurant, there were existing stuff on it. And I go, well, I can't work with this. I can work with that. And then, a friend of mine, uh, his name Charles Fan. He's a uh, at Slanted Door in San Francisco. Ooh, he, he's I've a family there. friend. That's a good restaurant. Right. And actually, he had eaten at my dad's restaurant, and he was a family friend. His his, uh, his brother and his family we, we hang out together, and um, and he decided to open a restaurant. And I actually was helping him in the beginning, um, because he had never uh, cooked in a I guess a, a, a commercial restaurant before. Um, but what he liked to say was that I seem to have forgotten the time I had in my, with my father's restaurant because it was such a uh, difficult time. Uh, it, it is if you work with your father, he'll tell you what to do all the time. Oh, that's and, what was difficult about it. <laughs> and then, and then the, the, the recipe that he asked me how to do something, I totally forgot. <laughs> I was like, I don't remember. I, I think in general, I'm the person that remember formulas rather than recipe. Yeah. Uh, it, it's like the, the formula of something is you should have something of this, some of that. And that's how I cook and uh, really write down recipes or follow recipes. So, um, yeah, so, so that, uh, so he had came, uh, Charles Van came and uh, he had studied uh, architecture in Berkeley and, uh, and he came with a computer and redrawing the plan of, of the, of the restaurant that I was, I was building. And he told me to move this and move that. And at the end of it, I said, did you know you just cost me $20,000 yeah, more? Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, you got to do it right. And I was like, okay. The, like, you're going to give me the 20000 <laughs> <laughs> right. He actually offered to give me a couple of thousand, but I'm like, okay, forget it. Well, it, you know, you start from scratch. I can start from scratch. So. Okay. So I think that's interesting that your dad opened a Chinese restaurant. I mean, you mentioned your dad. Yeah. He's from China. Right. But in, your mom never cooked Chinese food. Was your, right. So did your dad cook? No, he didn't. He also did not know how to cook. And he had learned it working in the U.S. for Chinese restaurants. Oh. And so my dad and mom both came from the region of uh, China called uh, Inside Canton, called Chaozhou. And they have their own dialect and their own food. Mm -hmm. um, and this food is actually very influential in all of Southeast Asia because... It's different from what we would think of as Cantonese food? Exactly. And a lot of the people who lived there were very poor. So they all had gone out and lived in other countries. And they had influenced the food of Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, um, Cambodia, Thailand. Um, and, 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 you know, go back to that... 
the French influence of, 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 of Vietnamese food, that pho that everyone loved. This, this pho food is actually is very similar to the, a dish from Chao Zhou that we eat. And in Vietnam, we call this other dish um, Cambodian noodle, which is uh, rice noodle with shrimps and seafood and pork in a bowl of soup. And it came from, it actually came from Chao Zhou. And the other day I was in San Francisco and I stumbled into a Thai restaurant that was serving a beef noodle soup. Um, and you can see the element of that, that Chinese, the, the Chao Zhou food in it. And, and the ingredients were very similar to the Vietnamese pho. So actually pho wasn't really that unique. Um, Is it the same kind of like star anise flavor? It, it didn't have star anise, but it had a, a soy base, like a hoisin sauce and a broth, and it has bean sprouts and some herbs in it. Um, but I think they used pork along with the beef bones. But the, the cut of meat on top of it was very similar. Mm. And I didn't know, actually I've never been to Thailand, so I can't, I can't tell if that particular restaurant has, you know, somehow fused Vietnamese food over. Yeah. Or it's just the, that all the basis of all these noodle soup all came from the same place. That is and, really interesting. And I feel more like it's, it's more that part. Mm -hmm. Because the large minority of uh, Chinese that speak Chao Zhou in Thailand and uh, Cambodia, in fact, almost all of them hmm. from Thailand, Cambodia, uh, speak this dialect. Hmm. Um, and uh, someone told me that if you go to Thailand and you can speak this dialect, you're fine in Bangkok without English or Thai. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, the restaurant's name, Falanzai, right. comes from something you heard your dad say a right. lot while you were growing up. Why don't you speak he, about that? Okay, so he went to Vietnam when he was about 16. He didn't have any family, and he had to work as a manual laborer, labor, um, helping someone transporting catfish from the Mekong Delta to the city. And um, he had always told me a story about how these Falanzai people would stop them, they were sometimes shooting at them. And then for many, many years, I always thought that it was a tribe. Mm. But then one day, I realized that he actually meant the Francais, the, the French colonists. Um, and I thought it was funny, this Chinese guy went to Vietnam, tried to speak French. Um, <laughs> so yeah. his, his accent, when he would say Francais, it sounded like Falanzai He actually, you know, he said, break him apart and call him Falanzai. Oh, he really said that? <laughs> he said that. And, and it wasn't just him, but all his people who came from this dialect group all say that. And it was very funny because there's a Vietnamese word for French, there's a Chinese word for French, there's a, and they just decided to take this Francais word and break it apart and say it that way. So they just came up with their own word. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason I picked that is because Vietnamese food has a lot of elements of French, Chinese, and Vietnamese. Right, well, that's why together. I was wondering if you, when you worked in the French restaurant if anything was tasting familiar to you at first. It, it, it didn't, but, like, but I did use technique that I learned from mm -hmm. the French restaurant uh, to do it. And, of course, they baguette and, and, and you know, their coffee is great. And those things, I, I can see the direct translation. Yeah, the banh mi is just obvious. Yeah. 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 And, um, um, yeah, and so, but, but picking this name, and I just, I just thought that, well, I could go any direction, but yeah. I actually really try really hard not to go too far anywhere. Um, it, it's actually kind of difficult to try to keep Vietnamese Vietnamese if you're trying to be creative, because it is very easily veered into Thai food they, mm -hmm. that 
because we all use the same ingredients. Right. Um, and, but they use more coconuts and more certain kind of spices. And Chinese would use more soy, more sauces. And so whenever we try to come up with new dish, so it's always trying to really hard to say, okay, this thing doesn't taste Thai, doesn't taste Chinese. It yeah. tastes, it it has a taste profile of Vietnamese, even though the ingredients and the techniques aren't there. But you have a global pho menu. I, yeah, I do. So what happened was with <laughs> being here in Bushwick, most of our customers, I would say 70% are regulars, and they were just eating the same food over and over. Yeah. I was just thought, well, that's really boring. Maybe, we'll, <laughs> But I didn't want to go and make another whole new menu. And I do remember that when, when we're cooking uh, uh, curry chicken, it was always the chicken bone goes in with the, with the water and, and boil into broth. And we took out the bones, and then we add uh, curry and coconut into it. And then, you, and then you, you know, you put the chicken in there. And we said, well, uh, we had a chicken pho. That's already the base of it. All I had to do is just add curry, coconut into that, and I have the same taste without having to start cooking a different dish. And then I tried it and I go, actually, that actually worked really well. And then I was, and then, then I was, then I was thinking that there's this other sauce called sade sauce that we put. Um, it came from the Chaozhou people. But this sauce actually has a base in uh, Indonesia, where a lot of Chinese have gone to work in Malaysia and Indonesia, and they have brought back the satay sauce. Mm. Um, and and the, the, in that sauce, the tamarind and coconut, along with all the other spices. And they had thrown out the, the coconut and the tamarind and added sesame and dried shrimps. And then it gets re-exported with the next wave of immigrants to Vietnam and Thailand and so forth. And so this sauce is like ubiquitous in, in, in Asia, in Chinese, uh, in Cantonese cooking as well. So, um, so we use that and put it into the soup. And it also, it's actually one of the most popular um, condiments we have. Yeah, it sounds delicious. Yeah, and then, and then since we are in Bushwick, I shop around all the time mm-hmm. and I really like mole sauce. So we put mole in mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we... And then uh, we had eaten in a Peruvian restaurant. We really liked the ají amarillo, so I make our version of ají amarillo and add. Uh, and so it we call it globe trotter because you know we can just swap out and you don't have to eat the same Vietnamese flavor every day if you live well, that's across very from us. Thoughtful and also <laughs> delicious. Yeah, they, they are, <laughs> yeah, delicious. <laughs> and um, it's actually it's, it's, it's interesting that people actually. Um, so we just use the word globetrotter just so that, that you understand what we're doing. Yeah. But now customers come in and actually refer to it as globetrotter. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it works. It's good marketing. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know. Um, yeah. Um, well, we have to wrap up, unfortunately. But why don't you tell us where Falanzai is and where we can follow you on, you know, the internets? Yeah. So Falanzai is on uh, 112 Harrison Place at the corner of Porter Avenue. It is about two blocks from Roberta's. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and we have our Instagram, Falansai, uh, Facebook, uh, you can follow us. And we are open uh, lunch and dinner most days. So. Great. Um, well, thank you, Henry. It was so nice to meet you. And thank you so much for coming in and helping us kick off season five. And we'll see you back next week. Wednesday Such a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.